Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and I'm here with Ben Logston. Ben, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Grant. Thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, I'm a computational biologist. I've been in the field of computational biology professionally, I guess, for about six plus years now. And before that, did the whole postdoc, couple postdocs and, uh, you know, grad school in upstate New York. Great. Thanks. So tell us more about your path. What made Ben Ben? You start from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So I was in college in undergrad. I was really into genetics and biochemistry, and I ended up uh, getting an undergrad, a, a BS in biochemistry, uh, but also um, minored in mathematics. So I've always kind of been like, uh, I have multi multidisciplinary interests. Uh, I've definitely pursued both of those going, you know, throughout my sort of trajectory, both professionally um, and personally, um, I then went on to Cornell and, and, and got a PhD in computational biology, really focused on building new sort of machine learning and high dimensional statistical methodologies to analyze genome wide association studies and high dimensional gene expression data sets. And really the like the driving purpose behind all of it was just this, you know, wanting to understand these complicated systems, you know, that in like physics, right, there's these simple rules and humans have spent hundreds of years building better instruments to figure out what those rules are and try to understand them. Um, but biology is just this, it's the frontier, man. We still don't know the rules. I mean, we have ideas about pieces and parts of it, but I've always been fascinated by that. And so being able to, and, I, and it's like one of those places where, you know, a lot of biology that's being done right now or has been done um, has, you know, not really focused on the sort of more quantitative side of things up until I would say relatively recently, you know, and there's a lot of really good work you can do just at the bench doing Westerns and gels and all that good stuff. That's been really powerful to help us understand and disentangle some of these systems. But I, but I've always sort of been in the opinion that like to understand these things, you, you need a, a, a bigger tool set. So that was kind of the motivation to do more quantitative stuff at Cornell and, and you know, get, you know, better chops on the stats and machine learning side. And then after that, you know, I went to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, did a postdoc there uh, with Charles Kuberberg, looking more at like genetic epidemiology, sort of like method development for analysis of whole exome sequencing and um, rare variant analysis type work. And then decided I wanted to do something a little bit with potentially more translational impact and did a, did a second postdoc at University of Washington focused on applying these sparse model building methods to gene expression data sets in cancer to try to come up with alternative ways of identifying driver genes that, you know, wasn't just based on mutations, but trying to use, you know, expression signatures or detecting within expression data signatures of drivers. But then I guess the, the real the real sort of like thing that I'm passionate about now and um, really have been grateful for, I'm actually, I just left Sage Bio Networks and I spent six and a half years there working in the neurodegenerative research space. And that's just been an amazing experience. And as a computational biologist, oftentimes you kind of are like a hired gun, some principal investigator like, or, you know, in CRO land, especially some client like brings you in is like, hey, I've got some data, help me make sense of it. But I do think I'm, I'm not just interested in like doing data analysis, like I think in the context of Alzheimer's disease in particular, like I, I really want to understand the biology as well and really want to help sort of marry all of these different quantitative techniques with the right data sets to sort of inspire the right questions that, you know, then 
the the folks doing the bench work can then go track down, develop new assays, do the right experiments, um, so we can actually like start figuring out these diseases. Because it's just it's also been fascinating in um, in the Alzheimer's disease space how the field has been very married to a very small set of hypotheses about like what is driving this disease, and you know just looking at some of the data analysis of the omic data coming out of Alzheimer's, it's like it's not that simple. Like amyloid and tau, you know, like there the signatures are there, and you, there's really interesting results or you know insights to be uh, gleaned from that. But there's so much other biology that's going on, and it's very complicated. We're looking under the streetlights, right? Yeah, I mean, the street lamp, street lamp effect is real. And, you know, you, we could talk a lot about, like, you know, misalignment of incentives in academia and industry and, you know, why that leads to lack of diverse portfolio, portfolios in terms of, you know, risk, as well as also, like, the technology needed to, like, generate data to be able to even, like, articulate some of the new hypotheses. You think about, like, for a long period of time, it's just people looking at tissue slides under a microscope and seeing you know, okay, well, we see these these amyloid plaques and these neurofibrillary tangles. What's going on there, right? And then like omics just opens up a whole new frontier of possibilities in terms of the biology and the you know molecular causes of the disease. And you can't see it, right, under a microscope necessarily, unless you like know what gene you want to look at, right? And really, I think a lot of it is knowing what the players on the chessboard really are and what the rules of engagement for those players are and how it relates to what we already know. You know, and the thing with Alzheimer's disease that makes it very different than cancer, for example, is in Alzheimer's, you can't profile the tissue during the course of the disease. You can't get antemortem tissue samples. And so all you see is what's happened at the postmortem. And so it really is like a, a Sherlock Holmes mystery in some sense. You know what happened after the fact, but then you're trying to like, put the pieces together as to, you know, what were the sequence of events that led to that? I think that makes it, it, it makes it a very, like, very different type of problem than I think cancer. In some sense, it's a lot harder because you're having to do a lot more inference <laughs> and we don't have good model systems. The, there's plenty of mouse models where you can just crank the amyloid to 11 and yeah, like things change. But if you cure Alzheimer's in a 5X fad mouse, it doesn't mean it's going to that whatever that drug is, is going to work in phase three human trials. So, yeah. So I think, I, I guess in terms of the answer, to, to wrap up the answer to your question about my sort of arc, I think it's really been one of, been really sort of generally curious and and expansive in my interests, wanting to understand biology and, you know, the sort of quantitative mathematics statistical side, but really sort of getting it, you know, really gaining a passion for the their application to neurodegenerative diseases in the last six years. And, um, at SAGE, I've been working in these these amazing National Institute of Aging funded consortia. So the Accelerating Medicine Partnership in Alzheimer's Disease, um, the Model AD Consortium, and most recently I was in the Treat AD Consortium. And these are multi-million dollar, multi-institutional open science consortia that are trying to pull back the curtain on other uh, causes of the disease through new data generation and analysis of that data. And so like AMP-AD uh, was focused on generating data to do systems biology analyses like WGCNA or causal network analysis, those sort of things on gene expression from postmortem brain to prioritize new targets in disease. Uh, Model AD is building 50 new mouse models of late onset Alzheimer's disease. 
and treat AD was sort of like the open drug discoveries um, idea where we actually would have, you know, medicinal chemists, structural biologists, you know, people who had experience in de uh, developing high, th high throughput screens and assays, um, and then marry that to everything upstream, right? It's just been an amazing experience working with so many different types of people. I think it's in terms of their roles, like I think that's not something you would not generally get to experience as much in, in academia, like as a bioinformatics expert, you generally have the, the PI who has some biological question and you're asked to analyze some data. And in this case, there was just a lot of different perspectives and language, you know, how people talk about things. And uh, so it's been great. Like it's been, you know, it was a, it was a really amazing experience and definitely opened my eyes to like, uh, you know, how complicated, you know, doing the, all these processes are sort of like from a from a philosophy of science side of things, like all of this is open science. So everything was being put out in the open through the AD Knowledge Portal um, that's hosted um, at SAGE. And I think that's also something that the, the young guard, I think, is re recognizing how important as we go forward is that like the actual value of any individual data set is usually, unless you're talking like, you know, clinical trial data, obviously, but like you know, preclinical, like basic research, like the value of any of those data sets is actually pretty, pretty minimal in on their own. And it's only when you can start combining them and like layering things up that you you can really sort of realize their potential. But a lot of people just sort of, you know, in terms of incentives, they're like, well, I, well I'm going to like generate this data and then, you know, sit on in my lab and have some postdoc crank on it for two years until they can, you know, hopefully find some gold and get a, you know, nature science or cell paper, right? So, so following on the misalignments of incentives, what do you think are the strongest misalignments and what do you think might be some reasonable reforms that should be considered to mitigate them? I mean, I think like a lot of it has to do with the academic promotion that basically people who are looking to get tenure, they're being judged on like two, two highly related criteria actually really one criteria, which is how much indirects are they bringing to their institution, which is a function of how many successful like R-level grants um, are they applying for and, and, and getting. Um, and that's all predicated then on like how many publications they're putting out because publications are kind of the raw material to sort of demonstrate, you know, leadership in a, in a particular field or domain. I do think that, you know, in terms of the misalignment of incentives, I mean, the problem with that is that it, it sort of leads to a, a model where people are all they're trying to be like an expert in one narrow thing. And the some of these problems, the scale of the problem, it's not something that you can do if you just have one hat. And so then it it makes it much more difficult for, I think, the traditional R kind of award where like you have the academic who has a lab that's like cranking away, cranking out postdocs and grad students who are who are all sort of working on that one little like that tiny little bubble on the on the on the edge of human knowledge that they're trying to expand. You know, it'd be interesting. I you know I'm less familiar with the physics you know in actual experience with like how it's how it works in the in the world of like particle physics. But in that case, there are papers with like ten thousand authors on them. And the instruments are just so big and expensive that like, in some sense, they have to work together with lots of people with different expertise in a, you know, in a lot more coordinated fashion, just because the scale of the problem is, you know, just so, so, so big and complicated. But in science, I think there's, it's still a little, I mean, in, um, you know, biomedical research, it's still a little bit of wild west where like, 
having an academic research lab is kind of having like your own little company, right? Where you're like trying to put in competitive bids to the federal government on research proposals and you're you're trying to demonstrate that you can be out, you know, in front and push the boundary on human knowledge, you know, in, in a very specific way. But I think those incentives lead more towards putting out lots of papers and being able to secure lots of indirect dollars to your parent institution. And that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be like taking risks. You're going to want to like continue to keep, you know, your lab being funded. Right. And so, and I think the, one of the challenges is for some of these areas of biology where we don't really understand what's going on and we have a lot of the street lamp effect as a community, we need to take more risks and we need to spread that risk around to a much broader pool of people working on these problems. We need like a leaderboard of hypotheses, right? And like have people work cranking away on all of them. And that as a, you know, as a society, we're like investing sort of proportionately across them, right? It's not tenable. You can't ask an early stage academic investigator to be like, oh, you should go after this target that nobody knows anything about. It's like there's 10 papers in PubMed on it. They're going to be like, no, I'm going to go after the one where like, you know, we, we have a lot of prior evidence and we can like write a sweet R01, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's one big misalignment of incentives where for people who want to get tenure, they, they're, you know, both in terms of the review process for grants, but also in terms of, you know, how they're being assessed. There's a general sort of necessary conservatism. And, you know, maybe that's fine. Maybe like in academia, that can just be how it works. But then there does need to be some other outfits that can contribute to, to our sort of collective knowledge and take some of those risks and push the boundaries a little bit more. And that, you know, a lot of that has to do with like how, you know, acad academic organizations uh, organize themselves, right? They've decided that they have this concept of tenure where, and that's the like big carrot they have for all these early stage investigators. It's interesting because I think like once you get to someone who's a later stage investigator who has like already, you know, made their name and, you know, have less to lose, they're actually more likely to take some of these risks and go after like projects and ideas that are a little bit more on the frontier, or a little bit more on the boundary, but. Well, and they can certainly afford to do so, right? They uh, typically have lar larger labs. They may have HHMI funding or something like this. And the failures don't really count against you. And the productivity per dollar, I don't think counts against you that much if you're still publishing high profile, interesting papers. Uh, and so, I mean, what I've seen from a lot of labs like that is they'll put postdocs and, and grad students on uh, fairly risky, you know, high high risk, high reward projects, uh, which are great when they work out. And I mean, that that kind of stuff is is pretty important to uh, to move science forward. But it it doesn't necessarily always serve the 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 postdocs well who you know may have been put on a an unsuccessful project given. Uh, the rest of of the system uh, that, that's currently in place. So if if Francis Collins is, who knows why, uh, listening to this podcast as he's driving uh, into Bethesda, uh, what would be your message for him? Oh, oh, oh man, uh, put on the hot seat. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think like the way in which labor, the labor market works in academia should be completely rethought. Like, I think that postdocs are incredibly, un, like on average, like undercompensated given their level of training and that you look at fields where there are good industry opportunities, like I'd say more in the sort of machine learning area or like EE or CS. And you see this just brain drain from academia. That's a problem. 
I think for me personally, it's like super frustrating that um, the biggest problems of our time curing Alzheimer's disease or cancer or, or, or all these other sort of like huge biomedical research problems, you still have like a huge brain drain of folks, you know, with the, with the quantitative side of skills. They're all going out to Amazon or Facebook or Google or whatever, right? Like because the sort of financial compensation is just it's just not comparable, right? Like they're like, why would you do a postdoc when you could get a six-figure salary, like or more, right? And then in just in general, like postdocs, I think you know you can end up having folks be taken advantage of because the 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 actual like academic job market is so like absurdly expensive or absurdly competitive, and people just get stuck, you know, like in a perma postdoc where they're where they're just sort of in a lab and like it's comfortable and there isn't a lot of good, you know, opportunities to like progress professionally. And so people will stay in postdocs for seven to eight years. So I think, you know, if I was talking to Francis, I'd say like, hey, look, there needs to be a complete sort of rethinking of the training model to like address the problems that we have now. The old model doesn't work. Like you you don't have this model where you can just have people come in as grad students, get their PhD, go do a postdoc with the one expert in the field, you know, have their own ideas and then, you know, get that first R01 or, you know, do a K award or whatever, and then go off and start their own lab, right? I just don't think it's going to work like that going forward if we're actually going to make progress on some of these problems, because you need to you need to be able to assemble teams of people with complementary expertise who can work together well as a team. That's just not something you're trained for in the academic model necessarily, right? It's very much so like you have to like figure out where you're going to like, you know, have the insight, you know, the lone genius in the tower, right? Who's going to like figure it all out. Really thinking how to restructure the training model. And I think that comes like at the end of the day, it comes down to the funders because the the PIs are the ones that are applying for grants and those grants are being used to like pay the postdoc or grad students salary and, you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. That's that maybe that's a little too radical of a take, but um I do I do I do think it's true. Yeah, there definitely are some bad habits we we sometimes have to train people out of when they when they come from academia, you know, when, when you do uh simple teams uh with complementary expertise and so on because uh, I think there's a lot more in general, a lot more teamwork uh, in, in in biotech. You know, the incentives are are, are set up in a very uh, different way. You know, Charlie Munger said, uh, "You show me the incentives, and I'll, I'll tell you the outcome." Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, channeling Peter Thiel here, uh, what's something you Uh-oh. believe is true, but where most people would disagree with you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we don't talk or think enough about the long view in biomedical research. I'm not sure people would disagree with me on this necessarily. I More, I think that they would just haven't really thought about it. Have you ever read the foundation novels by Isaac Asimov? Yeah. So just for people listening in those novels, you have this sort of galactic empire that's hitting the end of its tenure basically and about to like descend into, you know, some like 10,000 year dark ages or some something. And this guy, Harry Seldon's like, well, that sounds terrible. Let's do something about it. He, he creates this, this organization called the foundation. And, and long and short of it is that, you know, the foundation's purpose is to marry sort of changes in policy and, and, and technology and like all of the things that make a society work 
and come up with probabilistic models associated with those and you know make sort of subtle changes putting on pushing on all the levers so that humanity doesn't go through another 10,000 year dark age basically and i think from my perspective i i think we think a lot about the short game you know like going back to incentives in in private uh, corporation world like or or public corporations but you know in the private sector we you know there's a there's a lot of focus on shareholder value maximizing profits and like those are fine like i think that having good incentives to like have people be productive and to produce goods and services that are valuable to the community is great and you know and for a lot of like areas in human society where the there's there's problems that are very amenable to that solution i think in my mind it's like you know those sort of market forces are really good at finding local like maxima but i think for the long like longer view problems you need a little bit more than that and you know like the only thing we have now like for biomedical research to be specific is you know the academic model where you've you're funding people to sort of you know satisfy their academic curiosity about little little you know pieces of this bigger puzzle of say neurodegenerative you know neurodegeneration or evolution or you know biology development whatever and you know i don't think it's as intentional as it could be i think that there could be like grand projects or grand plans and not so much like the war on cancer like that always kind of felt like you know is more of a pr stunt to raise lots of money and awareness you know these bigger projects where you're saying like here are the here are the things we need to understand <laughs> to be able to actually move the needle on this and so and here's how we're going to fund this in a like very intentional way over not three years but like 20 30 plus years and you're expecting failure and you're like building all of those things in and it just i don't know it's just like as a society we just don't talk and think like that right like half of society struggles to accept ch climate change is real <laughs> so I, I it's definitely an uphill battle but like well the nih funding is a bit of a roller coaster right yeah it's, it's hard to hard to make a 20-year plan when you you have no idea what will be happening with the overall budget and and i mean i do think that is a pretty controversial take right uh certainly projects like encode and uh human brain project and things like this i've gotten a lot of criticism uh from scientists saying the money would, would be better spent uh on you know r01 or internationally r01 like uh grants but it's it, it, it is interesting the kind of long long view like that uh you know squaring that with our um system of 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 funding is uh a challenge yeah no definitely i i think the the biggest challenge really is it's really like the human side of things and figuring out how to like design these systems or you know articulate these plans in a way that works given the sort of vagaries of the you know personal human interest <laughs> you know i've worked in multiple consortia and with lots of different scientists in my time and it's pretty amazing like the variety of ways in which things can go wrong when you're talking about collaborative ex exercises. <laughs> and in some sense, that's why this, you know, I, I, I can't remember who I was, I was reading on Twitter or somewhere about, there was a scientist who was talking about like how, you know, I can't trust anyone else's data, uh, but my own, right? Like, cause at least with my own data, like I know exactly how it was collected, you know, I know it was done right. But I think like at some point we have to, cause there's just, we just can't get far enough the, you know, the, the amount of people who are suffering so badly because of some of these diseases and the fact that, 
you know, we just can't work together. Like that just seems like it shouldn't be the reason why we don't move the needle, right? Like, so I think that, you know, there's some aspects here of the science of science that probably needs to be brought in. Like, you know, there was an interesting paper that came out, I think it was in Nature last year, talking about how like small teams can be more disruptive, that they can coalesce an, a new idea and like move it forward very quickly. So they're like the explorers who are going out and, and, and discovering some, some like completely new, you know, asteroid or something, right? Uh, but then it takes the whole community to vet that, sort of move everyone forward. In terms of how we work together as scientists, I think you need some hybrid model where you've got like these small teams that are taking these big risks, you know, and then maybe finding some crazy new biology or whatever, but then you have to bring the whole community along, right? You know, and there's, and I, I think like, you know, there's the danger of, you know, some of the high profile publications is there's such an incentive for people to like be the one who discovers that asteroid, right? Like, I think that there was a paper that came out recently on the, you know, this like somatic recombinants in APP, and they thought that some of them were more pathological and that they were getting reintroduced into the genome and all this crazy stuff. And there was another paper that came out like, and that came out of Nature a couple of years ago. And then there was a paper that came out recently that was, uh, basically saying how that was probably just an artifact. And so this is, I mean, that's like an example of where the community is doing its work, but it's on such a long time frame, right? Like, and I don't think it's a problem, like, you know, that we make mistakes as a scientific community. Like, that's kind of the point. You're on the boundary of human knowledge. Like, it's an inherently risky enterprise. Your ideas are probably going to be wrong more than they are right. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have good mechanisms for vetting that and but also for encouraging that exploration in a productive way. Absolutely. I mean, in, in my experience, it can be more difficult to get a rebuttal published. Uh, you can be in review for much longer and, and the standards in some cases can be even higher than for the original paper itself. And I think part of the reason for that is there's, I think, not enough tolerance for people being wrong. And I, I don't mean, you know, things like fraud. I mean, that's a totally different, different matter. But when, when, when people get a paper retracted or something, uh, you know, it can be uh, seen as, you know, kind of the kiss of death for, for the first author and a stain uh, on, on the senior author and so on. And um, as long as it's, again, uh, kind of an honest uh, uh, mistake, it's, it's the the consequences can be so severe that that people will defend bad work that's wrong long after they should just engage their critics and recognize oh yeah this is this is wrong and 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 you know retract the paper with a you know relevant statement and move on and 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 to a lesser extent that i think that happens very frequently where you know, there are a lot of papers out there where, where essentially the core conclusions of the paper are wrong. And everyone in that subfield knows that. Um, but if you aren't in that field, you're, you're entering that field from an adjacent field and things like this, unless you really talk with people or spend, you know, have a postdoc spend a year or two trying to replicate the results, uh, you, you don't know. And we don't currently have, I think, a, a good mechanism for uh, communicating that um, uh, 
because again, in many cases, people kind of fight the retraction and so on, so it doesn't happen. That's partially due to the incentives, right? That it's like your stock options or something, man. Like once you have a couple of those nature papers, you can just like keep exercising your scientific credit options as you know, for a long, long period of time. And it just I think it's a human behavioral thing. Like there's a network effect. The rich get richer, that sort of thing. You know, you've established yourself as you know, a leader in the field. So it's going to be so much easier for you to like get that R01 or whatever other funding, you know, federal funding opportunity. And so, yeah, like when people, you know, are wrong, they're going to fight tooth and nail because it, you know, it has a very direct effect on their ability to continue to like professionally be a scientist in the current model. And uh, the other thing I've observed, and I'd love to hear your, your, your thoughts on this, is sometimes the criticism is wrong and the results are solid, the methods are solid. But in many cases, other bystanders rush to, to conclusions. You know, they, they see uh, a criticism uh, or a rebuttal of a paper and without really reading it and judging it for themselves and assessing it on the merits, they take a shortcut that, okay, this is crap. Um, and, and sometimes that's right. And I mean, I think sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes these rebuttals are, uh, let's see, podcast appropriate language, um, <laughs> are, are, are incorrect. And, and, and I think right now everything is very stilted, right? So, so, so there is good conversation at conferences in person, but that's not recorded. That doesn't get disseminated. Uh, there's, I think sometimes very polarized conversation on Twitter that doesn't really get us towards the truth. Uh, how do you think we could set things up in it kind of taking advantage of the internet and everything to, to get us closer to that in a way that is better recorded and more easily uh, disseminated uh, across, across both that subfield, but also the broader uh, community? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I know that journals will often let the authors post their own rebuttal to the rebuttal. I, th I was trying to think of a really good example of that. I think it was, um, oh, what's his face? The guy, David Reich at uh, Harvard. He had, it was like, if you read his rebuttal to the like, the criticism, it was like a masterclass in how you defend yourself, right? But, it, but at some level, that like it almost feels like it's a little bit more like science is becoming, you know, some sort of, you know, legal <laughs> um, enterprise where you're like, you're trying to like make a case. It becomes less and less about a holistic synthesis of all of the evidence and more about debating your opponent and winning points on them in some way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think to answer your question, if there are ways in which it's it's easier to share primary data, share all of the methods that are used and have, you know, independent, almost like an audit type process where like someone who doesn't have any skin in the game, right, who's a is an objective outside observer as much as is possible can go in and do an assessment. I think that 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 would be one way. Um, and, you know, and the, so the technological side of that is like you have to be able to share data and methods. And I think until we get to that point, you're always going to have this kind of like back and forth, you know, these grudges that come up between various research groups. Um, and, and I think that's all a lot of noise. Like you said, Twitter, like, like I really like it in science Twitter for like seeing new new science hot off the presses. Like that's Twitter at its best. But for like actual meaningful like 
dialogue about these things. It just it's just too easy for it to devolve into like everywhere else on the internet. And then at that point, you're just like, okay, I don't know, this is a waste of my time. Like this, I'm not getting a lot out of this, you know. I mean, I've seen a lot of people essentially go quiet in the last few years, or just leave their accounts altogether. I, I don't know what, what your impression is of that, but but my sense is, you know, maybe four or five years ago, there was a bit more of of the back and forth. And now it's gotten so polarized that, you know, you do see certainly some combative figures that are always jumping in oh, and, yeah. and, and fighting with each other. But um, a lot of people are, have just uh, kind of lurk, right? And, they, and that's, that's mostly what I do. I, I just look for uh, interesting papers. <laughs> It's just too easy to like say the wrong thing. And then I don't know, just reading this article in the New Yorker on, I'm going to be like totally typecast now to your listeners. Like this guy loves the New Yorker, but it was in the, the one recently where they're talking about the COVID-19 uh, crisis and, you know, people getting shamed on social media and how we still don't quite understand the effect of social media and public shaming has, has been how society enforces certain behaviors. But like, we've now like created a technology that puts it on steroids <laughs> and like, what's the effect of that? And it's just sort of fascinating. And I think it, I think it can stifle open and frank conversation because you, people don't want to like log in and get all this hurtful feedback from hundreds or thousands of people. Right. Like that, that's just a bummer, man. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, it seems like the, you know, the challenge is the monkey mind and maybe, maybe tech, you know, can't save us. Maybe it kind of amplifies it. And uh, um, although uh, the thing is, so, some of the same people who are just total jerks on Twitter are perfectly nice, uh, seemingly reasonable people in person, right? I mean, I think there is a psychological element to to being face to face with someone versus typing on your phone. Yeah, the anonymization piece of it, I think. I think, you know, you could talk about that in the context of peer review, too. You know, if we're, if we're just sort of hitting all the, like, all the related topics there, like, I think the anonymization, like, there, there are good reasons for it in peer review. There's also probably some pretty good reasons against it. <laughs> do, do you sign your reviews? I haven't been. I might start now, especially that I'm in, like, you know, I'm going to a, I'm going to a startup. I might start signing them because being an industry to it, it, like because your incentives are less linked to the whole like academic system there's chances for things being held against you later on right it's crazy some of these grudges you see I mean, in, in some cases they 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 date from you know 25 years back but uh it, it's such a small world that it you know it does uh have a substantial negative impact it's a very small world like the number of people like on study section is not that many and like it's basically like a, you know, last person standing, right? Who like gets to the point where they get invited to study section. And so. Right. And especially, especially where a single person can essentially sink an application. I mean, I think, I think that's kind of a, a problem maybe. And, you know, how the aggregate scores are computed. <laughs> yeah, no. It, it, yeah. I mean, you know, I think everyone's like, I think most people are acting in good faith in study section and, you know, in most reviews I've received as an author, I mean, there's obviously like exceptions where like people are just kind of nasty and that's just unnecessary. And <laughs> we should all as a community make a strong stand against like, don't be nasty in, in any of your reviews, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know why that's a cultural thing in science where people can be just straight up mean, just give your thoughts and give it to them straight, but there's no reason to like tear people down. 
Well, some people are just mean. Uh, I mean, I, I think for some people, it, it, the anonymous factor uh, plays a role. But there, there are some scientists out there writing under their own name who are very openly uh, mean, well, well beyond just just uh, making their their scientific point, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's kind of funny because um, you know, I'm pretty sure, like most of us, they were they were probably bullied as kids and things. <laughs> yeah. But somehow they 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 uh, you know some people become the bully. Yeah, they, they probably internalized it and they probably aren't even consciously aware of what they're doing. It's the sad part. It's just how they're reacting to that situation given their personal history, right? So yeah, uh, do you have anything else you, you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess a question I have for you is sort of, maybe I throw I turn the Peter Thiel question back on you. I'm, I'm just curious what your what your take is on that. Like, what's an opinion that you hold that um, other people would find controversial? That's a good question because it's not actually something I've thought about. <laughs> Even though that's you, right? Um, I think the chances of a, an existential calamity uh, to kind of modern uh, society uh, are are higher. Than, than most people think. I mean, I think there's a lot of fragility. We are extraordinarily dependent on on the internet um, for for so many things, um, and in in many ways, if <clears throat> a lot of the the kind of backbone infrastructure uh, of our civilization were were suddenly um, severely disrupted, you know, if you had a very strong uh, solar storm or something like this. I think it would be difficult for us to to reorganize quickly. I mean, even even you know this COVID stuff, right? This is like a you know an IFR 0.5 percent respiratory virus, right? I mean, throughout the 19th century, we had uh, infectious disease uh, epidemics that were were far more deadly on a regular basis, right? I mean, every every several years, uh, we'd have something like this. And of course, we've tamed that through through modern medicine and with you know vaccination and uh, good uh, clean water and things like this. But you know something like this that that no one would have really batted an eye at in in the 19th century has done a lot of damage around the world. Um, uh, not enough to you know end <laughs> uh, civilization as we know it or anything like this. But uh, but I mean I do think it, it reflects a greater level of of fragility because. You know, a lot of a lot of the the ways we used to do things, uh, we we don't don't have anymore, right? So, a lot of uh, even workplaces now, uh, increasingly, are getting rid of landlines. Um, yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> there's just just so many things that um, are kind of backup systems that that we we've gotten rid of for the sake of efficiency that that we can no longer uh, fall back on, and and I don't know, you know specifically what that shot could be right i mean it could be any number of uh relatively low probability things but if you take a lot of low-ish probability things and kind of integrate over time <laughs> the, yeah. the the chances of something happening um are are, are more than negligible so i know yeah, that would I probably be yeah. i was just gonna say i totally agree with that um so i don't fall into the camp that doesn't but <laughs> Right, so maybe it's not not as controversial. As <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm a typical, you know, person. I think that a lot of that has to do with incentives, like you said, efficiency. 
markets are always looking for unrealized short-term efficiencies, Mm -hmm. but these big scale risks that are, as Nassim Taleb would say, you know, like these black swan events Mm -hmm. that under like the local risk model where your tails are like very thin and you're like, oh yeah, no, that's a, that's like a, that'd be like a 15 sigma event. That's not going to happen until the heat of the universe. Well, no, our distributions, you know, those sort of events don't follow that (laughs) profile. And I think a lot of it, so it's like that short-term thinking and like the incentives that are like linked to that short-term thinking. Coming back to what I was saying earlier, like if you think more long-term, then you start to think like, oh yeah, no, we've got to like design our systems to be less fragile. We got to build in like redundancy and that there's that concept of anti-fragileness, right? Where like... Mm -hmm you actually have things that in the presence of perturbations become stronger. Those sorts of conversations, I, I, it's rare to hear them. Like, it's not like this political, like this crazy political season, that's what you're hearing on the debates or stuff. It's, it's right, like... well, and, and that's another thing that, uh, I mean, maybe my other answer to that would be, although I, I think this has become a lot less controversial in the last few years, but um, uh, it is is just that, you know, the the kind of, modern you know democratic neoliberal uh order is uh much more fragile and uh, you know that than i think most people uh recognize and you know we kind of take it for granted um uh, certainly in in uh uh you know a lot of, of western countries and english-speaking countries and things i mean we 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 assume it will be like this indefinitely and uh i mean there are already cracks right um yeah not just in the U.S. either. Like it's, it's like right. everywhere. <laughs> right, right. And um, the relative freedom and prosperity and things that we've enjoyed for a number of generations here in, in the big in the big view of his, you know, the long view of history is is very very short. You know, hopefully we can keep that going for as long as possible. But um, uh, I, I think it's it's far from uh, guaranteed. Um, and and you know, we, we could see things break apart in our lifetimes. I, I, I don't know. Hopefully not. <laughs> um, I gosh, I hope not. That, that has become a lot less controversial, I think, in the last few years. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think climate change is the like, that's the real X factor. I mean, even like the Defense Department was putting out a report on like, climate change is going to cause all this geopolitical instability. I mean, I think climate change is a part of it. Um, I think it's a lot bigger than climate change, though. I, I think, uh, you know, climate change certainly contribu- it contributes to and accelerates a lot of the yeah. habitat loss and things like this that were already uh, occurring and, and, and have been for a very long time. Um, and, you know, but at the end of the day, so many, I mean, actually, in, in our last, last episode, uh, Grace was here. We actually, uh, you know, talked a, a bit about ecological disaster. <laughs> um, uh, but but I mean I think something like that is is um, a more than just a possibility. You know, it's a a, a uh, depending on how you define it. I mean, it, it's it's uh, you know if you talk about mass extinction events, I mean that's that's a certitude. Uh, you know, we're yeah. we're kind of uh, it's 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 already uh, uh, happening in a lot of the you know insects and and and, and things like this on which you know ultimately the charismatic uh, megafauna depend. <laughs> are already um, on their way out, you know, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a, kind of a nervous laughter kind of situation, but, um, you know, I mean, people, people are pretty adaptable. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, it, 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 it's not, 
I, I don't think going to be the end of uh, certainly not the end of life on earth. And, and I don't think the end of, of humanity on earth or anything like that, but it certainly will make things different. Um, uh, and um, there will probably be a lot of people wishing that, that uh, their uh, ancestors had made different decisions. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. It's, it's, it's all kind of uh, unnerving. I feel like I, you know, I, I'd really like times to be a little less interesting, you know, for a bit. <laughs> they just seem to be getting more interesting. <laughs> yeah, boring is boring's not bad. <laughs> cool. So, uh, so what are you doing in between uh, Sage and um, and and the startup? Uh, you know, I know you're not hiking the Continental Divide or something, but. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, your your options are limited in in in, in the in this time. I know. No, I've I've just you know it's been honestly like it's, I've had a week off and uh, I'm in Bend, Oregon right now, taking a little bit of a break. Though it wasn't much of a break because I was working on the last two and a half days finalizing uh, the editorial changes on on the most recent on my last paper out of um, when I was at Sage. So it's like I feel like I was kind of trolling myself like. I'm going to have this week off to relax. And then I'm <laughs> like, oh, no, I need to get this edit, these editorial changes in because it's just going to be a pain to, to do that. Like, oh, yeah, once you're going to be starts. <laughs> <laughs> So, But that's done now. Thankfully, I got those in yesterday. So, yeah, I'm an, I'm an aspiring ultra runner. So, you know, I do a lot of running. Um, I've got a big race coming up in February next year. Hopefully it'll happen. You know, obviously, who knows with COVID? It's uh, the Black Canyon and 100K um, down in Arizona. So I'm just trying to put all the put all the work in so that hopefully that'll go well. Well, and if the official race doesn't happen, you can always go to Arizona and run by yourself. <laughs> yeah. Go run for like 11 hours. Make, make yourself a shirt, right? <laughs> That's right. 11 hours just in the desert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us today, Ben. I appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. Really appreciate being here today. It was a lot of fun chatting with you. Awesome.